This is Guilty Conscience. Casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners David Farhat and Nate Carter. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Guilty Conscience. As always, I'm Nate Carden, joined by David Farhat and Stefan Victor. Iman Kyler is still on leave, so we are unsupervised. Uh, today, we're going to talk about crypto, and we are joined by Roger Brown from Chainalysis Group, who's going to educate us and answer some questions about both the basic tax issues and controversy issues that arise in that space. Roger, welcome. Pleasure. Thanks so much, David. Thanks so much, Nate. Thanks so much, Stefan. Roger, tell us a little bit about yourself before we kick off. Sure. Um, I've been an international tax lawyer for a long time, uh, about 30 years. When I say that, it's, I kind of have to pinch myself. About a decade in the government, IRS national office, about a decade as a partner, Ernst Young, got to crypto via, I always blended tax with something else. So it was tax and financial products, tax and financial institutions, tax and fintech when fintech became a thing circa 2008 and then when fintech financial products really all that became, financial institutions were all coming together in 2013 14 people started asking questions about this new asset class uh, digital assets then it was really bitcoin only and other ones grew up uh, out of it and when clients ask questions you have to make become smart you've got to touch it feel it and in order to understand and get practical advice and that's how I got into crypto far more deeply, and because it really was the favorite thing I was doing, um, I would look forward to my crypto clients, their companies, uh, their issues, um, and it really, and then we'll get into this, all the, the wealth of things that it drew upon, I really enjoyed it and decided to focus full-time on it, which I, I have in analysis. So maybe just to start out, can you kind of tell us for people that are listening to this wanting to get started, a little bit of blockchain for dummies and how at a basic level it works, what its purposes are, and then frankly, whether it's the same as other kinds of assets, how the tax analysis would be different, just the the sort of flyby that you would explain to a, a general tax person. I'll start with blockchain because the word the blockchain technology is different than a quote digital asset. Digital assets, you know, there's tens of thousands of different digital assets. And there's many categories of digital assets that do different things. Let's just start with Bitcoin as an example, because it became really the the one that most people know. It's the largest asset by market cap. Um, and it's sort of the one that captured everybody's attention. So blockchain technology is and if you focus on the Bitcoin white paper, it was a feature for a peer-to-peer -peer payment network. And it is a very simple network of creating a system of record where if I give something to David, David gives it to you, Nate, Nate gives it to Stefan, and we'll call this thing a Bitcoin, then there's going to be a system of record on an agreed-upon general ledger, an accounting concept that we can always track that I have given it to David, David's given it to you, 
and, and Nate and Nate, you give it to Stefan. And the technology that if that allows for anyone looking at the the blockchain network and it's it's open, so all can look at it. Once you you can log in and, and see it on a, on a blocking score, it'll have my wallet address, not my name. It'll go to David's wallet, Bitcoin. It'll go to Nate's. It'll go to Stefan's. And there'll be a consensus mechanism that agrees that everybody will vote and confirm uh, via a calculation process, via a process called the consensus mechanism, where we all agree that that effect movement of the digital asset has happened. And when a sufficient number of people agree independently that that has occurred, then it effectively the record of that payment, the movement of the digital asset is recorded on the blockchain. And you're literally putting blocks together based on basically a sequence of transactions confirming uh, that the Bitcoin has moved from wallet to wallet to wallet to wallet. So that, that's really the technology and that Bitcoin is effectively the digital asset. So for a newbie like me coming into crypto, talking about the way I hear you describe blockchain, it's more of a tracking mechanism, more of a record keeping thing, or is right. it, I mean, that may be an oversimplification, but is, is, is that accurate? It's not an oversimplification when you just focus on Bitcoin because mm -hmm. Bitcoin was meant to be a peer-to-peer -peer payment network outside of institutions. Blockchain is about record keeping for the movement of Bitcoin through different wallets or contract between exchanges, obviously. However, when you get to, say, Ethereum and then smart contracts, then you have business functions or things like that that actually are replacing traditional business functions. And I'll go to something like Filecoin. And Filecoin Network, again, is a blockchain project that is, around, is focused on replacing certain business functions, which is storage and decentralized storage for I have excess capacity in my computer, I'm not using it, I in effect can um, rent out that space and be compensated and measured for how much space I rent to people, um, secure, multiple copies can be created. So there's other things, Helium, mm -hmm. there's um, video coin, which replaces a video transcoding process. There's mm -hmm. all these things now that are leaning into these traditional business processes that are far more than just payments. And then people have heard the phrase stable coins. Stable coins are, in effect, there's, there's different varieties, one of which is called USDC, which is effectively, or Tether, USDT, which is effectively a digital asset backed by, by dollars or mm -hmm. dollar-linked instruments or PAXD, Paxos dollar, where they're 98% backed by dollars. You can redeem it for a dollar. USDC and USDT are, yes, they're notionally backed by dollars, but in reality, they're really backed by dollar-based debt instruments, largely mm -hmm. either sovereign debt or corporate debt, et cetera. For people who are trying to analogize this or understand exactly what the digital asset is, what do you really own when you own, let's just use Bitcoin, because that's probably one that most, most listeners are familiar with. Is the ownership the ownership of the key, my ability to transfer it to David? Is it some other thing? Do I, I don't have any contract right against anybody, I don't think. 
because that would be contrary to the whole idea of it, right? But on the other hand, if I walk through the grocery store and I lose my keys and David finds them, it doesn't mean he owns my car, right? If I lose my wallet and he finds it, it doesn't mean he owns my wallet. But what if I lose my personal key? What if I lose my Bitcoin wallet? Is it just David's period full stop? So there's a concept that people often, a phrase that people often say in crypto, which is not your keys, not your crypto, or lose your keys, lose your crypto. Right. So if you lose the ability to move your crypto and your private keys, you're holding, you know, putting aside any account you have it on exchange, your ability to control the your crypto in your private wallet is affected by your keys. You know, your seed phrase um, for you to activate your wallet, your private keys. If you don't have that, you don't have the ability to control your crypto, and then therefore, in effect, you lose ownership. That said, if property rights still apply, if David comes and knocks me on my head and he takes my keys, so therefore, he, my private keys are my wallet, and he and he can. Is that possible? Just want to make sure. Uh, we you, not over Zoom, but in okay. real in real world, yes. <laughs> in real world, yes. So yes, it's theft. Yes, he that he has stolen something from me. The value of what he stole is the value of the crypto in my wallet. And uh, there are people who are facing criminal action now for having done you know electronic versions of that, whether they be ransomware or stealing people's keys or hacks and taking crypto out. So it is in effect, you know, what is it? It is property. It's not real property. It is, you know, if you put a label on it, probably either an intangible or personal property, depending on the relevant asset. You can turn on parts of the code and say, you know, there are you know parts of the code dealing with intangibles that you can, in effect, have. Could it be a customer-based intangible that's amortizable under 197? Yeah. Suppose I'm using crypto assets to store my business data. And therefore, I can amortize it under 197. Absolutely. So it has a business function. Or could it be, uh, suppose I buy a stable coin backed by euros and I'm a US dollar taxpayer. Well, I probably have an ordinary asset there because uh, it's effectively, it's not currency, but the currency rules probably apply to it because it's backed by currency and redeemable for currency derives its value. And there's provisions under Section 98-1 that actually tell you to turn on the currency rules. It doesn't matter that the OCC or regulators are treated as currency. The fact is there's a different standard. And then you cross a border in other countries. France is one of them. France's rule for currency is that does any country in the world think that thing is legal tender? So in France, Bitcoin is legal tender, not for transacting in France, but for purposes of their tax rules. Because El Salvador and Central African Republic think Bitcoin is legal tender, they have jurisdiction to write their rules, then that's what they did as a national, as a matter of national sovereignty. They say Bitcoin is legal tender in addition to whatever else I was using. The dollar was um, used in El Salvador, still is, but Bitcoin is as well now legal tender. Now, all of a sudden, those countries think from, from a tax perspective, you turn on all the currency rules. Lose your keys, lose your crypto. Do I have an abandonment loss? Or do I have some other loss if I lose my keys? I'm glad you, you asked that because it's a nuanced question. And abandonment versus theft or casualty are all different events. And in effect, you have to look and ask yourself because they have different consequences. So after the 2017 Tax Act, 
Uh, you may not be able to claim a, a personal loss where it doesn't arise from a natural disaster. They limited that ability in 2017. But that's different than uh, abandoning. And some people, and I've had this conversation with people, let's say they their crypto is underwater and they have an option of abandoning it, effectively sending it to a burn address, which is an affirmative act of getting rid of it. That's not a theft. That's not uh, losing it. That is controlling and walking away. And many people, including uh, people who uh, were partners in Arthur Anderson and other uh, places like that, um, that had partnership interests, do treat that as a tax planning strategy because crypto is not a security, generally from the, in a tax code. You can go through all the different definitions and it would be hard pressed to treat crypto as a security in the way security is defined. Generally, it's debt instrument or a financial derivative or stock. Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these things are not. Again, I'm putting aside tokenized, <laughs> real tokenized equity instruments. So if you have that, if you abandon, you probably are into the classic rules that they're not going to treat you as a capital loss and you can uh, have ordinary. So you have to give full effect to what the economic transaction is. And when we teach um, in our courses uh, tax consequences of crypto, you always have to ask and begin with what is the real transaction that occurred? And then I can tell you how the tax rules will apply. I wrote it down. It's in the drawer. Then I forget what drawer it's in. You know, maybe I'll dig it up someday, but I think it's gone, right? It's like the, the power bill. I just, I lost it. I, I think it's a personal loss. I don't think you would treat it as abandonment. It's along the lines of a personal casualty loss. Um, and you could have the limitations there. In effect, when you are filing your tax return then, um, and you're thinking of, gee, do I treat this as abandonment or do I treat this as a personal casualty? If you're going to take an ordinary loss on it, you're going to have a burden of proof if the IRS disagrees with you. And then I find it, Section 61. There's a tax benefit rule where if you do take a loss and you find it back, then you've got to pull it back into income, yes. So you think it would just same concepts that we'd use with anything else is your basic point? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Can companies create their own blockchains? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, they do. Banks do. Many companies do. You see fewer tax issues around it. I think you're going to see more and more of those. I think I think what you're frequently going to see, there's many permissioned, uh, and I, it's permissionless and permissioned. So the Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum, is permissionless. Anybody can come up and interact with it or create a variation of it, change things, et cetera, uh, build, et cetera permissioned or where a company or group of companies can come together and they're going to say, we are going to um, interact together in a consorted way. And we're uh, will, uh, or a company can develop this and then license it to a group of companies or company. And in effect, you get all the benefits of faster processes, confirmed transactions, doing away with the need for audit, People have flirted it with around transfer pricing. I know it, I know that one of the areas that Dave is very strong in. And there, if you have an effective blockchain where all of your transactions are being recorded on an immutable basis and everybody see any auditor can come in and see that parent sold to subsidiary and here was the price and there's a payment being made and you see that the um, depending on what you put in there, just the the whether it be the supply chain itself or whether it be the payments, what's on there, you again, you can determine what's going to be actually uh, recorded on the blockchain. 
But those things are being flirted with for purposes of not having to deal with trying to close the books and taking 30, 90, 60, 90 days to close your books. Did the transaction happen? At what price? I think in five to 10 years, um, that will be widely accepted. And there's a company called, uh, uh, a project called VeChain. PwC is actually one of the investors in it, if I recall correctly, which is actually a supply chain based uh, mm -hmm. blockchain that people, including Maersk, I believe, is uh, actually flirting with and, and using for purposes of tracking the movement of goods. And I know banks are also flirting with that with regard to their customers. So to pivot a little bit, again, we, we've gotten some of the building blocks as to what you have when you have a digital asset. We've talked about the taxing being very similar. Um, but as we know, as, as tax practitioners, while in theory it's very simple, the practice can become very difficult and nuanced. But before we kind of jump into some of the taxing, what are some of the implications here for governments and taxing authorities, particularly talking about kind of blockchain and these digital um, assets and kind of looking at some things as, as currency? You can see the complexity in them kind of trying to keep up with the, with the change in technology. But it also sounds like talking about black blockchain, there may be some advantages there for your typical tax examiner, right? The information should be easier to have, should be easier to track, and they shouldn't be at as much of an information disadvantage as they are in, in some cases with audits. So the implications for governments, I'll start. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just focus on the IRS. The IRS is not motivated or metric or tasked with maximizing tax revenue. Their mission mm -hmm. is to collect the appropriate amount, the proper amount under the internal revenue rules that Congress enacts. Congress is has you know put this framework in if you have a, a session to wealth by whether selling ipods um Air, airpods or crypto you have income so then the irs comes in and their job is to to make sure that you're complying irs statistics are uh, and these are not mine they're irs there's a trillion dollars a year of taxes that people owe that they don't pay data point one data point two 50 billion of that every year are from unpaid taxes on crypto. That's their data, not ours. We have a similar data that it actually aligns somewhat with um, the amount of potential gains, but we don't map it to what people are not paying. That's what the IRS thinks. $50 billion a year of unpaid taxes on crypto. So then the government has to deal with, how do I deal with, this is not a matter of, I don't have to write rules or try to administer people selling AirPods to friends and whether or not they're paying tax, because that's not something at a scalable level, $50 billion. But where they see, and this is a statistic in their GAO study um, that the that Treasury Department put out, the Government Accounting Office put out, that when they saw um, one of the largest exchanges saying they had 30 million customers trading crypto, 30 million. And the IRS, in 2000, based on 2013 15 data, saw that they had 900 um, returns reporting crypto. And they must have gotten that from either Schedule D or the 8949 saying, this is crypto, you have to specify your asset class in 8949. So 900 people reporting crypto, but 30 million customers. And the IRS knows, and again, GAO study, that there's mass noncompliance when you don't have third-party information reporting. So I think what, what Congress did it was really smart in terms of, and the, and the government was actually doing working a similar project, actually proposed regulations on this. They were saying, they were putting out a regime for information reporting 
for exchanges to say, I, don't, I can't go out and audit every human being because the blockchain doesn't say Roger Brown's wallet. Roger, the blockchain will say wallet address 1257 AQ has these transactions, but the IRS has no way of knowing to, ta- to, to say that's Roger Brown. So what they did is, but, but, but anytime you have a point where you can associate a name with a wallet address, that's where you can now all of a sudden have an audit. Or you can do certain open source information searches, et cetera. Maybe they come up on a, a Bank Secrecy Act form, a FinCEN, et cetera. Maybe it'll come up that way. But from a policy perspective, the government governments can ask, should we tax crypto? And if so, then we need the information to make sure that people are paying the appropriate amount. Some governments have said, we're not going to tax crypto when you're investing in a technology. Germany's policy, for example, is that if you hold crypto for more than a year, we're not going to tax it. France's policy, as long as you don't, you can trade crypto for crypto, like Bitcoin for ETH. But I mean, I mean, that's not a good example after um, El Salvador changed uh, their, their made it made it legal tender. But if you change Bitcoin for XRP, Ethereum for um, XRP, that's not taxable under their policy. But Germany's pro growth policy, and they're one of the top four or five countries in leaning into blockchain. Their policy, in effect, is pro-growth because you can invest in a digital asset, and if you hold it for more than a year, it's not taxed at all. Assuming you're not providing, you're not a, a super active trader, et cetera. You're just an investor. That's not us. We give a favorable tax rate uh, for long-term capital gains, but that's not, again, a full exemption. So, as a policy matter, the governments are saying, "What rules should I write for purpose of this?" IRS is having uh, is doing information reporting, leading with that based on the Congressional Infrastructure Act, um, and there's a number of audits that are occurring. It sounds like government and tax authorities, while all at different stages, are still in very early days. Whether it's policy and whether it's actual enforcement. So, as taxpayers, whether I'm a small, I'm an individual kind of doing this on the side, or I'm a large multinational and kind of looking at crypto. What should we be thinking about in terms of possible controversy, what the governments are doing? What should we be doing to to be prepared for the day when the governments are are more advanced? I would say learning about how tax rules apply to crypto. There are many, all the law firms that I have discussions with are thinking about ways to embrace the technology and partner with companies like ours and partners with tax calculation companies. We also partner with them. So including client onboarding. So as you guys probably know, uh, law firms and accounting firms can be nervous about taking on clients who touch crypto. Our technology can be licensed by them to show that all of their crypto holdings, for example, come from centralized exchanges. So they're all KYC. They're not laundering drug money. They're all responsible business people. So that's the kind of client you want. They're just getting access to this digital asset class. And we risk score and we have products that do that. Second, there's a swath of products that calculate taxable income. So teaming with us and a tax calculation firm where they can compute and gain loss so that you can defend either a number that people have put, a, put, a, have put on a return or calculating a number where they, they didn't report it. Now the IRS is coming in and saying, you should have and you didn't. 
So you're partnering with those. So it's getting the knowledge, getting the systems to onboard with companies uh, so that you're not going to be bogged down with administrative processes and putting in place the framework to calculate the gain loss. The amount of trading of any material amount of taxable income, you will need a special software product. Does blockchain or crypto change the transfer pricing landscape for companies or can they rely on traditional transfer pricing norms? It depends. So if a actively traded digital asset is sold from one controlled party to another controlled party, there's a third party price and you could apply a cup to that to determine what is the right price. So that issue that hasn't changed from if they were to sell an other actively traded asset, um, the stock or bond. So there's no difference there. First resting point. Second resting point, they're selling goods or services between affiliates and you're recording that on a blockchain. The blockchain is going to record the fact that that asset moved. It's not going to tell you whether or not the right price, it was transferred at the right price. So that's where you'll have a pricing source come in. And and by the way, people, including our tools, we use third-party pricing sources, will come and say, okay, there's it moved at this price. And you can have metrics that show it moved, but it won't tell you that it's a fair price. You will need to have an external metric to determine that it was the right price. And then you're going back to your traditional transfer pricing methods, whatever method governed that movement of goods and services. So I appreciate that question, but I think that's the answer. Yeah, I think one one thing that's interesting about transfer pricing isn't so much the pricing, right? But it's the documentation, how you track these transactions, how much more precise, not just the taxpayer, but the government can get kind of going going at some of these transactions. Because I think one of the, and we've talked about this on the, on the pod before, um, one of the issues with the government is when you're auditing a transaction, you have less information than the taxpayer does, and you're kind of you're kind of chasing. It sounds like a lot of these um, a lot of these digital assets and, and, and blockchain may be able to kind of close that information gap for the government. So it would require a bit more precision on the taxpayer's part, right? Because if the government can see a bit more, your transfer price, I think it, precision becomes more important in your transfer pricing. The blockchain will reflect that the fact that the transaction happened and they will mm-hmm. follow the flows as to where the assets are moving. They will not be able to do an overlay of what is the right amount. I view that blockchain in effect is really will be replacing traditional accounting systems, inventory management systems. They're, mm-hmm. they're related and and there'll be different stakeholders looking at that and drawing different inferences and using those that that common tracking mechanism for different purposes. Mm-hmm. So it'll be able to be payables, receivables, uh, the, the the transfer pricing people, um, the financial auditors, the tax auditors, uh, the customs officials. All of those will be in effect on a blockchain. And um, people are even now talking about governments using blockchain to um, audit uh, for custom purposes because of the open source nature of the blockchain and recording all of those so that there can be real you know, same time uh, tracking and auditing of that. But it sounds like from what you're saying, it's not just governments. Anybody can see these transactions as they're going on the chain. So why can't does that basically mean that everybody's if 
they're doing these transactions internally, but through blockchain, that anybody's trans internal transfer pricing transactions would also be visible to the world if they could associate a key with a particular entity. It depends with what blockchain, uh, going back to the question earlier, so, there are some uh, permissioned, meaning everybody can't see the blockchain, only the people I let in. So nobody could, so, so the, the world couldn't see those transactions where they're just permissioned only inside my company or permissioned inside a group of banks. So a huge amount of activity, for example, occurs between the biggest banks in the world, like 80% of commerce. If you take the top 100 banks, you would have a huge percent of global commerce just occurring between the top 100 banks. So could they have a permission blockchain just between themselves that only those banks could see with regard to payments? And there are people developing projects and use cases around that as, in effect, a way for immediate settlement of transactions and not two or three days. Or you don't need seven days for international wire transfers or things like that. So there are absolutely those things. So, Roger, we're coming to the end of time. And again, thank you for joining us. Any final comments, anything you want to leave us with? And I think Stefan had one last question as well. I guess a couple things. From a technical tax perspective, the rules are not new. You're relying upon historic things that you've had to deal with. There's a technology barrier to understand the core. There's lots of learning resources out there. It's important to understand technology that surrounds it in terms of companies like ours. We are a company that focuses on on-chain analytics. There's lots of things that are relevant from a business perspective. Many um, banks use our services for uh, assessing risks for transfers on and off so that, uh, so that they're um, customers that they can feel comfortable with. They're not violating any sanctions or managing institutional risk. Many investment funds use our services so that when they're buying digital assets, that they're not engaging with people who, again, who are um, presenting institutional risk to them. Governments are using our products for purposes of not only doing their tax audits, but also securities regulators, commodities regulators, banking regulators, assessing uh, for purposes of standards. And then thinking about all the, the core use cases of our technology, as well as those that compute gain and losses. So it's important to lean into that space and understand how your clients as a law firm or an accounting firm or other service provider can benefit and use technologies like ours for purposes of serving your clients, reducing your own risk, and gaining the efficiencies of the technology, quite frankly. Because I think we literally will be moving as we move from a, there's a web one world that people talk about, which was just these read-only pages on the internet. There's a Web2 world, which are the Facebooks, the Amazons, et cetera, which are marketplaces, ways to interact with these centralized companies. And now we're leaning into this Web3 world, which is more of a permissionless, engaging, peer-to-peer um, -peer empowerment of the customer, taps into a lot of political trends, a lot of that are, that are, are going on inside the government on the left, the right, and the middle, but also in terms of technology. And that's some of which, which is what you're seeing with Twitter, what you're seeing with Parler and all these other things, all these free speech. And also, yes, that's a political and speech perspective, but there's also this engaging in commerce, which literally draws back to the original purpose of Bitcoin, which is a peer-to-peer -peer mechanism to transact. Will companies run into any issues when valuing um, either its own or the use of blockchain? 
where the value is kind of largely, as you said, efficiency. When you say value, value the asset or value the benefits of using blockchain? I'm not sure if I understand your question. Value of the asset. For actively traded, no. The only issue I can see there is that there's different valuation sources. Many sources use what they call a, a VWAP, valuated average price. So they basically just look to the price at which assets are trading on every actively traded exchange, and they and they weight them by volume on the exchange, and they do that on a minute by minute tick. If you go again to Coin Market Cap or Coin Gecko, that's the kind of method you see. Other people use a gap method, which is the principal market, to say which is the principal market, the most reliable market to observe that. So if the price at in a particular exchange is not reliable, and the reason that could exist, for example, is that some exchanges are uh, accused of wash trading, so that they basically turn assets between wallets they control, um, not customer wallets, but just their own, for purposes of driving up volume and appear that they're really active exchange. And then, therefore, that effectively inflates the price. And they can do that for purposes of trying to create attraction activity on their, on their platform. So the, you know, some people, to answer your question, do try to look to methodologies that weed out that sort of non-market behavior or market distortive behavior so that they won't, you want to use a volume weighted average B price VWAP. I say that in that the IRS has, uh, ha- is okay for their F- FAQs to use a VWAP. Um, and as David, however, would tell us from transfer pricing perspective, you know, unweighted averages are a no-no um, in general. You want to use real pricing. So therefore, that would lend itself more so to um, using a price uh, that takes into account and looks to reliability um, from that perspective. Reliability is always a theme in transfer pricing. Same concepts, new area, fascinating. Roger, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 